nothing. Um, again, my name is uh, Jason Samples, uh, for those of you who don't know, and there's a lot of new faces I see here, which is great. Um, I go to uh, Parkland Chapel there in Farmington, all right, so uh, uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, down the road there in Farmington. Uh, we uh, love you guys greatly. We pray for you. We, we hope we can support and encourage as much as possible. Uh, I've had the blessing of knowing uh, Mike uh, Mingi uh, when he uh, first really started walking with the Lord um, uh, there uh, as a young man at, at AV Chapel, and, and Kelly as well as she started attending uh, Parkland Chapel. And uh, it just blesses my socks off to come down here and to see how the Lord's working in your church. So thank you for having me today. Um, we're going to be studying... Uh, Mike had, had sent this to Steve and myself as asking us if we would help teach while he was gone to uh, Israel, uh, preparing for Easter. And as we did that, as he kind of laid it out, what you're going to be finding over the next few weeks is you're going to start to see as we prepare for the, preparing the sacrifice is going to be some of the early parts over the next few weeks as we prepare for Easter. And um, you're going to be looking at Jesus being examined. Jesus being examined. Today we're going to look at Jesus being examined by religious leaders. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to John 18, that's where we'll start. John 18. So Jesus being examined. So it got me thinking. I'm an educator. Been, a, been in education for 21 years. School teacher, coach. I, I've been a principal, administrator, uh, blessed by education. My wife's a school teacher. My sister's a school teacher. So School teaching's in our blood. And so it gets me thinking about uh, testing. Testing. Uh, one, of the, one of the things as I looked at testing, I thought about some things, thought about a couple old jokes about testing. Uh, like uh, the son talking to his dad. And he's like, Dad, why? Why with testing? He says, you've told me that we get born once, right? Which is not really true in Christ, right? We get born, thankfully, twice. But let's go with the joke. I get born, right? Yeah. Then I die to die once, right? Yeah. And you said, you hope I fall in love once, right? Yeah. You hope maybe I get married once, right? Yeah. So why do these darn hard tests keep coming back and forth and back and forth all the time? Another time was the young man went up to his teacher and he said, uh, teacher, I, I don't think I deserve this zero on the exam. And the teacher says, I agree, but that was the lowest mark I could give you on the test. So that's all you could get there. <laughs> Another example with examination, again, the son's talking with his father, and the father says, all right, son, uh, why did you get such a low score on this exam? And son says quickly, absence. And the father says, you were absent on the day of the exam? And the son says, no, but the guy who sits next to me was that I always get all the answers from. So as we're going to look at Jesus and the examination process, you're going to see a couple things. One, uh, Jesus deserves the highest marks. All right. Two, Jesus is present. All right. And three, Jesus only has to take this test but once. I don't know about you. My mother's here today, and I'm blessed to have her come uh, uh, be with me. But one thing she has said to me often is uh, these tests that you get in your life that God puts in your path, uh, if, if you don't pass it, that's okay because God's going to send it your way again. It'll keep coming. If you struggle with it, it's going to keep coming. 
Uh, God will keep having you struggle as slowly you go from that salvation experience to that sanctification experience in your Christian walk. You'll, you'll keep having those tests come up in your life. Well, the blessing that we get here, I think what Mr. Mingi or Pastor Mingi is asking us to look at is one through Jesus, is one to reflect on the beautiful sacrifice that is the Lamb of Jesus that is once and for all paid for our sin. Amen? That once and for all has given us eternal salvation. And it also gives us a chance as Christians to reflect and go, well, how can I handle tests in my life? How can I handle examinations in my life? But also the blessing to know if I can't handle the tests Christ-like all the time, thankfully Jesus has paid it for me. So let's look here at John 18. A little bit to give you some background. First, uh, John 18 follows what is called the upper room uh, discourse often in John 17 there. In John 13 through 17, we actually see a lot of the upper room discourse. We see the Last Supper, which is actually in John 13, a long way from John 18. So in John 13, we get the Last Supper, and then we get a, a very different view. If you've looked at the Gospel of John, it's very different than the, than the synoptic Gospels, right, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The synoptic Gospels, and I know when I first heard that term, I'm like, well, what's this? What's that big fan, you know, synoptic? Synopsis, an overview. Those Gospels give us that synopsis or an overview of Jesus' life, and they tell it from different perspectives. But John is, John's Gospel is completely different, isn't it? If you look at those Gospels, it's a completely different Gospel. You know, it starts off with saying um, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's completely different than any of the Gospels. The perspective that John is trying to get across as opposed to the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels typically try to show us that Jesus is man. John, oftentimes, he's showing us that, but he's showing us that he's the God-man. He's showing us that Jesus is king. Jesus is a deity. Jesus is God. And you see that coming up over and over again in the Gospel of John. So, John 13 gives us the Last Supper. Uh, we see later on there uh, that um, John 14, uh, 15, and 16 give us messages about how to live as John is kind of, Jesus is kind of pouring into his disciples there in those last moments, talking about he is the vine and they are the branches, talking about the Holy Spirit is going to come, and gives us them those ideas. And then finally, John 17 ends with that upper discourse prayer. So if you look at John 17, uh, that prayer, if you read it out loud, roughly takes about three minutes to read. And it's Jesus praying, uh, not necessarily for us to hear, but he's praying to God for us. And you see these prayers that Jesus is pouring out to God. And it's said that he did that so we can kind of get a perspective of what he's doing for us there at, at, at the right hand of God, interceding for our prayers. We did intercessory prayer this morning, and it's a blessing to know my prayer doesn't have to be perfect. My prayer just has to be pure from my heart, and that Jesus will take that to God. So we see in John 17, that's how he ends, uh, and we don't get that in any of the other Gospels. You don't get that in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, that Jesus there at the Last Supper in the upper room takes that time to pray, and he prays um, so we can we can realize that's what he's doing for us right now. That's what he's doing, interceding for us, praying for us. It also kind of convicted me too a little bit that when I read this, is, this is the longest prayer in the Bible, that prayer that Jesus has, and it takes about three minutes, his public prayer. Now his prayers privately, I'm sure, were much, much longer, 
But that public prayer was three minutes, and it kind of convicted me about how I pray sometimes, or, or about our public prayers, maybe not so much all that we say, but it's the heart of what we say. So if you ever feel uh, uncomfortable praying publicly, don't, don't, don't fret it. Just let the words be from your heart. Let them be brief and let them breathe to God. Um, all right, so we pick up here uh, now after, um, after uh, uh, the, uh, the upper room, after the Last Supper, uh, after the, the prayers of Jesus. We pick up here in John 18. We'll pick up on verses 1 and 2. And it says there, when Jesus had spoken these words, and what words? It's the prayer that he just finished at the end of John 17. Okay, so as he's finished praying there in the upper room, after the Last Supper, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So, uh, when he had spoken these words, again, that was the upper discourse prayer, all right? And so we've talked a little bit about that upper discourse prayer. Then notice that Jesus leaves the upper room. He leaves the upper room to go outside. He leaves to leave the town of Jerusalem. He leaves to go where they're having Passover, and he goes out of the town. He goes to an isolated area, and he goes to a place that he's been to before. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is there at the Mount of Olives. Uh, we see he's been there often before. And we see that a lot with Jesus, that he'll remove himself from the people when he goes to pray, that he removes himself when he has this time of renewal for himself, and he has this time when he invests in his disciples. So uh, we see there that Judas, uh, Judas knew, uh, knew this place. Um, but we also, uh, let me get my notes here, I apologize. We also see that... Um, We also see uh, that he passes, when he does this, he makes himself vulnerable. Uh, the vulnerability. He knows what's about to happen, all right? And as he goes to that place and he knows what's about to happen, uh, he makes himself vulnerable. Um, and I think it, it touched me that um, he knows he's about to be examined. He knows what's, what, what's going to proceed here. Uh, he knows he would probably be a lot safer to just stay in a nice, safe, comfortable space. You know, uh, Steve and I were talking about Pastor Mingi and talking about safe travels and all that goes with travel. Sometimes we've got to put ourselves out there. Sometimes we've got to put ourselves in a place, a position of risk a little bit to bring God glory. And Jesus knew that that's what he was being called upon to do by his Heavenly Father. He also knew that by doing that, this was going to allow um, the temple guard, the Roman soldiers, Judas, to take him. They weren't going to do it publicly in front of the people. They were going to wait and look for a private place. And Judas knew Jesus well enough to know that there would be a private time, and a private time would be a time for prayer, and that would be a time that he could go and find Jesus. Now, we also see that he crosses over the book Brook Kidron. Now, I didn't know a lot of, I had heard of the Brook Kidron, and as I, as I thought about this and studied this, I, I, was, I was vaguely familiar with it, but as I studied it more, I realized that I'd seen it before, and those of you that are Bible students, you've seen it before as well. Uh, we've had uh, King David pass over the Brook Kidron. We see him pass over the Brook Kidron in 2 Samuel verses 15, or chapter 15, and he's doing that after he had been betrayed by Absalom. He's also doing that uh, after he had been betrayed 
um, by his uh, friend Ahithophel. And um, so during a time of betrayal, he's fleeing, and he has to pass over the brook Kidron. We also see that the brook Kidron was actually, uh, I I was thinking it was maybe like a, a small little creek or something like that. Uh, it's, it's actually a pretty foul ditch is what you find. Uh, the filth of the temple would run into this ditch. Often the filth of the temple that came from sacrifices would run into this ditch. Uh, it's been described by some scholars as even maybe like a sewer type ditch. So we see that Jesus, like, like David before him, they have to cross over. Even a king is not uh, at a place where he's not going to have to pass over a place of deep sorrow, a place of deep pain, a place that holds our most ugliness in it, um, especially during a time of betrayal. Jesus knows he's about to go into this time of betrayal, and he crosses there over the brook, and he goes to a place of vulnerability. And he goes to a place uh, to where Judas would know and would know him well. Notice that Jesus is not resisting here. All right. One way, again, I said John is, is, is trying to show us God's glory. He's trying to show us that Jesus is a deity. Jesus is God throughout this. One thing that kept coming up to me as I read this was the glory of Jesus keeps coming out through his dignity, through his dignity. I kept reading where uh, different Bible scholars were saying, here's God's glory, here's Jesus' glory. But what I kept seeing was dignity, dignity. I, I would have been in a panic and, and we see that Jesus was in some places. Did you notice here we don't, we don't see the, uh, we don't have that time of prayer where he's sweating blood and, oh, Lord, please let this cup pass from me. Those, those human moments, do you see we don't have those human moments? Again, John is wanting us to see him as God. So I'm not saying that Jesus didn't have that. We know he did. But we also know that once that was put aside and he knows what's got to be done, he steps up like a man, like we'd like to think we do as men, right? but more as a God with dignity. And he goes in and he crosses this brook brook of sorrow. He crosses this brook of betrayal. And he crosses over to where he knows he's going to be vulnerable. Or we pick up here in verse 3. It says, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Jesus, who betrayed him, also stood with him. So we look there, um, as we look there in verse 3, we see that Judas comes out to Jesus with a troop. He's got a great number of, he's got the temple guard, but he's also got Roman soldiers with him. Matthew says in his gospel about this, it was a great multitude all right. The multitude would have had officers, soldiers, chief priests, Pharisees. Why bring so many people to take Jesus, who hasn't been violent at any time in his ministry? Well, one thing that they knew, that this Jesus, whether they believed in him or not, he, could definitely, have, he definitely had the power to perform a miracle. And they thought it might take a great number of soldiers to take Jesus. And one thing it made me think about us as we examine ourselves, as we look at the examination of Jesus, these people knew who they were looking for. We're going to touch on that in just a minute. They were looking for Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, whether they saw Jesus as God or they saw Jesus as man, they realized Jesus was powerful. And it convicted me that knowing that Jesus is powerful is not enough. 
right? It says the demons even know that Jesus is powerful. The demons have fear. We have to go beyond knowing that there's just power in Jesus. We have to know beyond that I, I had just better, I had better have myself in order and I better have some support because there's power in Jesus. You have to know more if you're going to truly experience Jesus as God. Verse 4 goes on to talk about Jesus then showing that glory. And again, the word that kept coming up for me shows his dignity. He shows the dignity of a king. He knows all that's going to happen here. And Jesus simply asked them, who are you looking for? That is a big question for us as well, isn't it? Who or what are you looking for? Another example is if you're just looking for power, if you're just looking for a genie in a bottle that's going to give you the wishes, it's going to get your life all the way you want it, I'd ask you to be very fearful of that. How do you answer this question? Maybe you're not looking for Jesus at all. Maybe it's the last thing you want to look for. Maybe you're looking for just the power of Jesus. And if you find Jesus, we've got a lot of, uh, I, 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 if you're a Christian, if, you, if, you, if people know you're a Christian, you're going to find there's a lot of people that approach Jesus and they're ready for conflict, right? They're going to have their troops. They're going to have their support. Are you searching for Jesus for just mere power? Are you searching for Jesus and you're worried about conflict? Are you searching for Jesus for true peace? If you're searching for Jesus in true submission, that's when you can find this God of dignity who's simply going to ask you, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? And if you're looking for that Jesus of peace, you'll certainly find it. Verse 5 goes on there to say, um, they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Notice they never acknowledge him as Christ, they don't acknowledge him as Savior. They don't acknowledge him as King. They don't acknowledge him as Son of the living God. They don't acknowledge him as King of the Jews, as we're going to see him labeled as later. Again, how do we answer this question? That that may be one of the most important questions of our lives. All right? Uh, we're going to pick up here on verse 6, and it says then, Now when he said this to them, I am he, they drew back, and fell to the ground. All right, I'm in verse 6. So he says, I am he, they drew back, and they fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he picks up there in verse 8 and says, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. All right, and it goes on in verse 9, that the saying might be fulfilled which spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Now, he goes up and he says to them, whom are you seeking? Do you notice that Judas doesn't recognize Jesus? Judas is supposed to be the guy there that's got the inside knowledge. He knows where to find Jesus. He knows where, he's been with Jesus enough to know, he's been with Jesus for three years, for goodness sakes, right? At this time. He knows him well enough to know where he's going to be vulnerable. He knows that Jesus is going to probably go out and pray or a place like the Garden of Gethsemane. That'll be a place you can take Jesus. That'll be a place where the public won't be there to see the ugliness that's about to come. He's supposed to be the right-hand man that knows Jesus. But he doesn't recognize Jesus. And one thing that had humbled me, at this point, we're looking at Jesus being examined by the religious leaders. Sometimes, I think all of us, myself included for sure, we can get to points in our life and in our Christian walk where we don't truly see Jesus, where we're not truly seeing Jesus because we're not seeking Jesus as God. We're not seeking Jesus as our Savior. 
We're just seeking for Jesus of Nazareth. We're just looking for the Jesus man. Just show me how to be a good man. Just show me how to handle this real world situation and I can just move on. I don't really need it. I don't really want to spend a bunch of time in deep prayer. I don't want to spend a bunch of time in big self-reflection. I don't want to spend time with fasting. I, don't, I, just, I just want this to be handled in a right way or, worse yet, like Judas, in a wrong way because at this point, whatever Judas' motives are, some speculate that Judas had figured, figured that Jesus is not the true Messiah, needs to get rid of him, or he figured that Jesus would save himself and this would get more money for their coffers, or all these different theories about why Judas, and I'm not going to get into that in today's message. But for wherever, Judas was in a wrong place. We can all acknowledge that, correct? Even though he's, he's the one person there. Out of this whole group of the soldiers and the, and the Pharisees, these Pharisees that are supposed to know God very well, better than anybody, he's the one person in that group that truly has spent time with Jesus, yet he doesn't recognize Jesus at that moment. Another point here, if you look there at verses 6 through 10, notice that in this section, Jesus does, and I, I did step back from dignity. I keep saying dignity is how Jesus reveals himself, but for a moment... I think we see true power of glory that puts fear in the hearts of men. They fell backwards. Did you notice that? We don't see that in other Gospels. He says, I am. Notice he identifies himself as the great I am. I am whatever you need. I am he. And they fall backwards. What I would ask you here is this. When you find Jesus, because I, I, I would venture to say everyone at some point is going to find Jesus. At some point, they are going to find Jesus. The Bible even talks about those that are, that are lost in faraway countries that for some chance don't come across a Bible, don't come across a missionary, they're going to find Jesus. And of course, most of us are so much more luck, especially in the mineral area, for goodness sakes. Churches at every corner, Right? Bibles in probably everybody's house. We're all going to find Jesus. When we find Jesus, and we get to that point, who are you, Jesus? Which way are you going to fall? Because you're going to fall. Are you going to fall backwards? Are you going to fall backwards in anger? Are you going to fall backwards in disbelief? It takes more. It says the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, but it doesn't say the fear of God is salvation. All right? Are you just going to fall backwards in fear, and then that fear is going to drive you into anger? going to drive you into disbelief or what I what I what I venture to offer to you will you fall forward will we fall forward when we find Jesus will we fall forward on our knees in worship will we fall forward with the fear of the son of god and worship with submission and love which is not the place that Judas was at certainly and not the place where these soldiers are at uh, we see psalm 27 says uh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked are against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they will stumble and fall. Psalm 35, 4 says, Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. And then finally, Psalm 14 or 40.14 says, Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. That would be the other thing I would say to you as you look at this examination. And maybe we take time to look at ourselves and say, You know, I also get examined. I also have to cross over the brook Kidron of betrayal. I also have to cross over this brook of sorrow 
and feel betrayed. How will we handle it? Well, if we have Jesus with us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Anyone who is for us will be driven backwards, who wish you evil. The last thing I would say there as we, as we look at verse 9, it says, then again, I see God's glory, and I see God's glory through Jesus' dignity. In this time, Jesus doesn't say, why are you looking for me? I haven't done anything wrong. Why you pull me over? Wait, what, what, what did I do, officer? You know, He doesn't start to ask about his rights. He doesn't start to ask, which he'll talk a little bit about later on, but he doesn't hear. The first thing he says is, Jesus asked them to let the disciples go. Again, the dignity. Jesus requests mercy for his disciples. While Jesus willingly prepares to take the punishment, just as he does for our sins today, he also says that the saying might be fulfilled. He says, please let them go so they're safe, so the saying might be fulfilled. Well, if you're going, what saying is he talking about? He's referring to John 17, 12. Again, this is from the upper room discourse that we touched base on at the beginning, from the prayer in the upper room in, in the chapter preceding this. And Jesus says there in verse, chap, John 17, verse 12, while I was with them, his disciples, while I was with my disciples in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, Judas, that scripture might be fulfilled. So the first thing that Jesus does is he asks for mercy, just like he does for us. He takes the punishment for us, and he asks for mercy for his disciples. So we pick up there, as Jesus is showing this great dignity, I love how his disciples react. All right, so we pick up here in verse 10, all right, just a minute, my Bible app is giving me some trouble today. All right, here we go, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, Simon Peter the fisherman, by the way, Simon Peter this fisherman, disciple, follower of God, what's he got? He's got a sword. He's, he's, he's packing heat when he shows up to the Garden of Gethsemane for prayer because he knows this is a volatile time. So Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malachus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? So we see here, Peter fights back, right? Some fight back. Here we go, all right? But we, we see even uh, Jesus Christ was attacked, all right? So if we feel attacks, we can look at Jesus and see how much more he was attacked. He's accused in the absence of wrong. But it makes me think about how do we or how do I react when I'm attacked in my life. How often do we want to fight back? You know what? I'm a school teacher, so what am I going to do? I'm going to cut somebody's ear off. That's what I'm going to do because I'm well trained with a sword. Do you think Peter was aiming for the ear? As I, I've read through this, you know, I've heard this often and a lot of times. It's, I've heard this since I was Dave. I was your age. I never want, but as I thought about it, I'm like, you know, what was he probably swinging for? He's swinging for the fences. He's probably trying to take the guy's head off, right? What's he get? He gets the ear. And who does he get? Uh, this, this poor Malachus guy, <laughs> right? So he gets this gentleman that we get mentioned in Scripture here, which I guess he's not purely innocent, right, being with this group of soldiers. But still at the same time, is he the true root of this? Is he the, is he the if I'm just looking at a worldly perspective, you're going to see Ananias is probably someone we need to look at deeply as the priest behind 
this examination as the teacher behind here given the unfair test all right but it's this soldier that gets so we 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 come swinging and who gets it a bystander and we go swinging at person we think should get it and we don't even get them where we we aim for we just maim them right but notice what jesus does quickly we know in the other gospels he takes that and he heals the ear right when i would be going yeah yeah can you can you hear me now can you hear me now huh right that's not jesus jesus heals the ear all right notice again though the dignity that jesus takes peter goes free who should get arrested in this whole thing right who's someone that we should probably we're going to at least take you in for questioning because you're not you know you're a little unstable here that's a little resisting arrest i at least got you for resisting arrest peter Peter, Peter doesn't get taken in. Matter of fact, we see Peter later on here in John standing around a fire denying Jesus, right? While Jesus is in taking the heat. Again, the dignity of Jesus. Jesus heals the wound of our sin. Jesus heals our fear. Jesus replaces our anger. And then Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup? Shall I not drink the cup, Peter? Now, what is this cup? Well, we know from the other Gospels, Jesus prayed for this cup to pass him, right? And we talked about that. Those are Gospels showing him to be more human so we can relate more to where Jesus is coming from because that's honestly where I'm at in prayer often. Lord, just let this pass, please, please. But we see there's a lot of cups mentioned in Scripture, many of them, and I'm not going to touch base on all the cups mentioned in Scripture, but a couple of cups mentioned in Scripture to maybe think about as we study this today. The cup of salvation. Psalm 116, 13 says, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. We also see mentioned in Scripture a cup of consolation or a cup of comfort. Jeremiah 16, verse 7 says, Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them to comfort them for the dead, nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. But Psalm 23 refers to this as something we are going to give, a cup of comfort. It says you, in Psalm 23, of course, uh, the famous psalm, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. The cup that is happening here, though, is the cup of judgment. The cup Jesus is referring to specifically. In Matthew 26, 39, he, he does say there, He says, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But he goes on to say in Matthew, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And it got me thinking about cups that a father would give their son. On St. Patrick's Day, uh, uh, our family has probably like your family, a lot of families have that tradition of having corned beef and cabbage. You guys have corned beef and cabbage on St. Patrick's Day is just us. Anyway, it's good. You got to have some corned beef and cabbage. That's some good stuff. But when we have corned beef, the corned beef comes out, and I got to have some horseradish on, on that corned beef. And every time, I don't get horseradish nearly enough, uh, but when I get that horseradish out, uh, especially when I, we don't have it at my house very much, it makes me think of my grandfather. And it makes me think of my grandfather. He would put horseradish on bologna sandwiches with mayonnaise and onion, right, and some horseradish. So, and I'd see him do this, see him do this. I didn't know what it was. I just thought, well, maybe it's another thing like mayonnaise. I like mayonnaise. I'm probably going to like that. I said, like, Grandpa, what is that? Horseradish. We go on eating. I'm like, well, can I have some? 
And I remember when I asked him that the first time, when I'm probably about my, my youngest son's age, I'm probably about nine or so, starting to think, well, I can eat the same thing Grandpa eats. I can have coffee. I can, I can, I can have horseradish. So he, he's like, well, yes, yes, you can have some. So I take some, and I'm like, okay, well, how much? He's like, well, just take a good spoonful of that. Put it right on your bologna sandwich. So I take a big spoonful. Well, that's probably not enough. Take another spoonful. So I, anyway, I, I put some on, right, because I'm going to have some more horseradish. So I put that on, smear it in with the mayonnaise, take a big bite out of that bologna sandwich, and that horseradish kind of got up into your nose. You ever have that where it gets up there in your nose a little bit? You can't get it out, and the, the snot's coming out, and I'm crying, and snot's coming out. And through the tears, I look at my like, oh, grandfather, why did you do this? You know what he does? He's just laughing. <laughs> so now let's fast forward about, oh, I don't know, 25 years, and I'm sitting at uh, El Tapatio with my, well, no, it wasn't El Tapatio. It was another rec- Mexican restaurant with my 9-year-old son, and w- they served us some really spicy salsa. And he's like, Dad, can I try some? Of course, my grandfather comes back at me, and I'm like, well, yes, son. Yes, you can. Because that's how we show love in our family, right? We've got to make you cry. That kind of honoriness in giving a cup to your son is not where God's at at all. All right? It might be a little more like this. And I thought about this. We were, we were at uh, Homestead yesterday eating there at a buffet uh, with, with my family and my, my youngest son. He, he's about two minutes into his meal. And he goes, can I get ice cream? And I said, have you eaten a vegetable? Yes. Okay, corn? Yeah, kind of. Okay. Have you eaten something green? And not a booger, sorry. <laughs> have you eaten something green? No. You got to eat something green, okay? Finally, he eats something green, then he can have some ice cream. Now, that is a very poor analogy of what God is doing here for his son. He's giving him a cup. He knows that this cup is the cup of judgment. Jesus knows that this cup is the cup of judgment. Jesus knows that he's just had to walk over the brook of sorrow and betrayal to get there. And he knows that he's about to go into judgment and pain and some of the things you're going to study about in the next couple weeks. But notice how Jesus does it. First of all, Jesus doesn't do it ignorantly like I did eating horseradish. He doesn't do it what am I going to get out of it? I get some green beans and then I get some ice cream, even though the green beans are good for me. And he knows they're good for him. And he knows that dad, deep down, is doing it because he loves him, even though he probably won't say that, right? He's doing, Jesus does this because, one, we see his glory through his dignity here in John. And two, he does it for you and he does it for me. He takes that cup. All right, so we move on here. Uh, to uh, verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Ananias first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. All right, so we pick up there. And let's see if I can get my notes to work here. There we go. All right, so Jesus is led away first to Ananias. Now, I would venture this, and you don't have to take my word for it. You can study, uh, and you might find things uh, different or better. I'm not going to say you won't. But Ananias was a high priest from uh, A.D. 6 to A.D. 16, all right, and had been a high priest. But at the time of this scripture, Caiaphas 
is the actual high priest. And Caiaphas was a high priest from about A.D. 18 to about 36. During this time, Herod would, get, would have got the, the power to appoint the high priest. All right? uh, the Roman government is, is giving that over to Herod to appoint. So my question is, why Ananias? Why does he go to Ananias first? Why doesn't he go to Caiaphas? Because if this is really a religious law he's broken, right, where he's going to go and be examined, and what kind of a good teacher is going to give you a test in the middle of the night, right? Middle of the night, when you're exhausted, when you're vulnerable, let's go take this test. Matter of fact, let's do it where it's not going to be public. You're going to be kind of on trial here, but we're not going to do it publicly. Completely different than what we do in our society now. There's no Twitter feed going on here, right? No live Facebook feed. There's not everybody in, the, in their brother here. We want it very private, and we want to go to Ananias first. I would venture to guess, now this is, pardon me, this is probably where Peter should have gone with his sword a little bit, all right? In, in that Ananias may not be the high priest, but the religious leaders still accepted Ananias as their high priest, their leader. And if you look in the scripture, you see his hand directing a lot. And what I would say the biggest thing here is this. Again, we go back to that question. Whom are you looking for? Who do you seek? Right? Well, we see Ananias' answer is Jesus of Nazareth. And the answer to this examination, we're going to examine you as a religious leader, the church. We're going to examine you, Jesus. But before you ever finish the test, here's the been determined. All right? You failed. You failed. And you're going to die. That's already been determined. It doesn't matter what you put, A, B, C, or D. You can just keep going C if you want to. You're, you're going to fail. All right? We also see that in verse 14, I, I think it's interesting here too with Caiaphas. We see earlier in Scripture that Caiaphas puts this out about, well, wouldn't it be better if one died like Jesus? Let's, let's kill off Jesus so one dies so all of us don't have to die. Right? Wouldn't that be better that we just take one kind of kind of crazy religious guy on the fringe and kill him instead of all of us? How interesting and how true that is. Unknowingly true from Caiaphas. This superstitious belief promoted by Caiaphas that one man would die for the Jewish people, much like the religious Passover, by the way, to protect them from Roman rule. Caiaphas didn't know how wrong, but he also didn't know how right he was. And it made me think about how God uses the hearts of men for his will. Whether our, our hearts are in the right place or not, God's going to get his will accomplished. John shows us this section to let us know that it's already been determined that Jesus is to die at this trial and this mockery. And it makes me think, too, if this is looking at Jesus being examined by religious leaders, us religiously, how often do we examine Jesus and we see him truly for what he is? That we truly see him for the power that he has? today in today's day and, day and age in today's time all right that we limit him sometimes that we don't see the that we've already got a predetermination maybe not as severe as Ananias but that we already have a predetermination or right, we pick up here uh, in verse 19 we'll kind of skip over just a little bit as we finish up here in verse 19 it says the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine so Ananias is actually asking here Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I all, he, uh, pardon me here a minute. My Bible's kind of jumping around. I spoke openly to the world, and it's not going to that. So he did speak openly to the world, trust me. 
I don't know if I can pull that up. Let's try this. Come out. Come back in. Mm, no, that's not John. Can I use your Bible, Steve? I'll use a good Apple tablet. That'll help me. That's my problem. Okay, so it goes on there and said, Then the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and doctrine. And Jesus answered, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and the temple where the Jews always meet in secret. I have said nothing. Why do you, a- why, why do you ask me and, ask those, and not ask those who have heard me what I said? Indeed, they know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers stood by and struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Ananias sent him bound to Caiaphas, to the high priest. All right, thank you. So we see there that um, he is uh, questioned there by uh, Ananias first. All right? He's not taken to Caiaphas. He's taken to Ananias. All right, and he answers these questions. And the first thing he says was, was my teaching not public? Did I not say these words publicly? Did I not say them in the synagogues? Did I not say them in the temples? Notice how different this is than when he withdraws. All right, he withdrew all right, to make himself vulnerable. He withdrew and knew he made himself susceptible. He didn't stay in the upper room where he locked the doors, you know, where he could have been safe. He went out and made himself susceptible. He also goes out to make himself susceptible there in the outside, in the wilderness, during times of fasting, during times of prayer. But when he actually has his teaching, his words, his words are very public. All right? They're spoken there in the synagogues. And he says, you can, you can merely ask the people, and they'll tell you what I said. And I said these things right there in front of you. You've heard these things, he said. Now notice here, though, Jesus is struck. So Peter doesn't get struck, right? None of the other disciples get struck, but quickly Jesus is struck. Now notice how he responds. Notice how he responds, all right? Again, with dignity. He doesn't come back swinging his sword, right? He doesn't come back, you know, cussing and spitting. He comes back um, simply asking, what have I said? What have I said here that provokes anger? What have I said here that's not true? What have I said here that deserves to be struck? And notice that the man who strikes him, he's trying to defend the old guard. Do you speak to a high priest like this? Well, he's not really speaking to the high priest, is he? He's speaking to the former high priest. He's speaking to probably the man behind the seas, Ananias. But still, that man wants the religious protocol held to toe. And it made me think about that again, about how sometimes we can hold so strongly to religious protocol, so strongly to, you know, you have to do this at church, or you have to do that at church, or you have to do this to worship, or you have to sing that, or or wear that, or go there, or do this. And this holds so firmly and so strongly that if Jesus even says any, and he doesn't even say anything that questions. He doesn't say anything that questions them. He just says, what I've said has been spoken publicly. And you can merely ask the people that have heard it publicly what I've said. And that's when he's struck. As this ends, we see Jesus is finally being sent to Caiaphas, the true high priest. If they were really going to file a protocol, if you're really going to take someone 
and uh, during this time for proclaiming themselves to be king of the Jews and you're going to kidnap, you're going to take them and arrest them in the middle of the night and take them to trial. If that's the true protocol, then they're supposed to go to Caiaphas right off the bat. But what did the religious leaders find when they examined Jesus? What do they ultimately find? Well, they ultimately find exactly what they're looking for, don't they? They find just simply Jesus of Nazareth. They find a man that they're going to kill. That's where they end. They already had predetermined what they're going to find. And how often do we see that when we talk or witness with others sometimes? All right? It talks in places of Scripture, one of the verses I looked at, when it talked about Judas not being able to see Jesus, how there's Scripture there that says there are some that are actually blinded from the gospel. Oh, how I would pray that that's not any of us in this room. Oh, how I would pray that that's not anyone you love, that's not anyone you witness to. And oh, how I would pray if you come across anyone that is blinded from the gospel, that already thinks they see Jesus, that we could pray that their eyes would be open and that the light would be shining in their life. But what do we see as we conclude this part about religious leaders examining Jesus? Well, I would say this. Do they fall fo fo forward or do they fall backwards? Well, we see very quickly they fall backwards. They fall backwards in that they're not even going to be the ones to kill Jesus. They've got it all predetermined, but they're going to fall backwards. I'm behind you, Pilate, right back here, way behind you. They're going to allow the Roman government to do their dirty work, and they've already predetermined how Jesus is going to come up to this examination. So it convicts me that as I go through this Easter time that maybe I can examine Jesus again and then hopefully examine Jesus, not looking for something predetermined, but looking for all that God is, the great I am. All right, if you would, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I uh, thank you so much for this time. Uh, thank you for uh, the people here at AV Chapel. Thank you for their attention. I pray that you bless them. Uh, I pray that your word uh, would not return void as we know it won't, that it could plant seeds of conviction, encouragement, edification in proper order. And during this time, as over the next couple weeks at, here at AV Chapel, as they study the examination of Jesus as they prepare for Easter, and as we all prepare for Easter, that we could seek you and we could look for you, Jesus, but that we don't just look for uh, a Jesus that we think we know, that we look for the great I am, the all that you are. And, and thank you, Lord. Thank you that we know that uh, you have completed the work for our salvation. So we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.